Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Recession alarm bells are sounding off a lot louder these days. The lead starts right now. The New York Stock Exchange closing this hour and dropping to levels not seen in months as big Wall Street banks warn the worst may yet be to come. Plus, connecting the dots after three Trump lawyers popped up at a federal courthouse unexpectedly. Now, in a CNN exclusive, their secret steps to block certain witnesses from a criminal grand jury. And Hurricane Fiona gains strength and takes aim at Canada while another storm takes form and could be headed for the United States. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. And we start today with our politics lead and a secret court battle being waged by Donald Trump's lawyers. Sources are telling CNN that attorneys for the former president are fighting to keep witnesses from testifying before a federal grand jury about Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, the legal fight has been secret up to this point, but it spilled into public view yesterday when CNN crews spotted three lawyers for Donald Trump at the federal courthouse here in Washington, D.C. And our intrepid reporters, CNN's Evan Perez and Caitlin Polantz, broke this exclusive reporting today. All right, so let's get right to it, Caitlin. Tell us a little bit more about this legal fight. What exactly are Trump's lawyers arguing here? Well, because it's secret right now, we don't know exactly what they're going to be arguing. Uh, But it is a fight that is before a judge uh, in the federal court in D.C. It is because there are grand jury proceedings where they're trying to get information close to Trump, things that happened in the White House, say, on January 6th or before them, maybe things that attorneys were advising him or that he was saying to lawyers around him who were working with him or talking to him about his wish to overturn the election. And generally, when you're looking at something like this, what we know, what Evan and I and Zach Cohen have been able to confirm here is that this is a fight over privilege. And when we say that, that means uh, that Donald Trump could be arguing a lot of different things, trying to protect the information around He could be arguing executive privilege. He could be arguing attorney-client privilege. And what that is generally is it's throwing up roadblocks for investigators so that they're going to have to go to court and get a court order if they want access to that information that is closest to Trump. Why is the secret, Evan? Well, everything in the grand jury is secret until, and you know, they decide whether they bring charges. But you know, we, uh, you know, our team has been following this very, very closely, and we saw some of this activity pick up uh, several weeks ago after some of the witnesses went in. We knew that some of them had had cited the former president's claim of executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, to decline to answer certain questions. And we've seen some of these prosecutors, Tom Windham who is running this part of the investigation on the, ele- on the, uh, the, the efforts to overturn the election. And we've also seen the Trump lawyers going in. And so that is why we've been trying to figure out exactly what this is. And now we have. And now you have. Yeah. Uh, so what's next is the big question, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the, 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 for the, the Justice Department, they want to get 
to these guys to come in and answer questions. These are uh, some of the closest aides to the former president, including the former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin. That's the real goal, to try to get some of these guys to answer questions that they've declined to answer so far. And if they can get through that, then they can learn a lot more about what the former president was doing, how involved he was in some of these efforts to essentially discard the results of the election and keep him in the White House. That's the goal here. And, and look, there's some people who could be facing charges, not only president, but some of the people who were involved in that effort. And we know some of the president's former uh, staffers have already testified in front of the grand jury, Caitlin, including the former White House counsel. If you would walk us through who we know has testified in front of that grand jury so far. Right. There's quite a few people. So we, Evan has mentioned Eric Hirschman, who was one of these people. We don't think he has testified at this point, but he was subpoenaed. They want to ask him questions. That may be one of the things this is, fight is over. But then there's four others very close to the heart of this, uh, what happened inside the West Wing. Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin, both from the White House Counsel's Office. There's also the VP's office, top advisors, Mark Short, Greg Jacob, they all went into the grand jury in recent weeks and certain questions could not answer because Donald Trump wanted to claim privileges over them. On top of that, there's lots of things happening in this investigation where other people could be affected as witnesses by how this plays out, what the court ultimately decides here, especially lawyers who were working with Donald Trump. We know that there are at least two lawyers that work with Trump who have had their phones seized, Boris Epstein and uh, John Eastman. Uh, And so a lot of the ability of the Justice Department to get to information may hinge around this fight and where it goes. And I know you will be covering this fight for sure. Thanks so much, Evan, Caitlin. We appreciate it. And joining me now to discuss is former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Hi, Mick. So you're a former lawyer. You also worked in the Trump administration. You can provide unique insight here. Do you think Trump's attorneys have a case here? Um, Hey, Pam, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, probably. It's very unclear. Keep in mind, there's a bunch of different privileges here. The attorney-client privilege is different from executive privilege. In some ways, attorney-client privilege is actually harder to overcome. The executive privilege is very murky because it's not entirely clear to me and apparently to other lawyers as well as to whose privilege it is to invoke. For example, when I went to go testify before the January 6th committee, uh, the committee actually got a letter from the Biden administration waiving executive privilege for me. Um, whether or not Trump even controls his own executive privilege is open for some discussion. It, I think you know, the previous interview you just did a really good job, though, of explaining a lot of the variables, keeping in mind that there are different lawyers involved here. Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin have testified um, to the grand jury. They were never Donald Trump's personal lawyers. They were his lawyers as his role as president. And that's a different type of privilege than the folks like, say, I guess Mr. Hirschman might have been Donald Trump's personal lawyer. So uh, it's a very, very confusing sort of morass of privileges. They're all very, very important. You can imagine the seriousness of of getting into what a, a, a client says to an attorney. You can imagine the seriousness of getting into advice that people gave the president inside the Oval Office. So these are very serious matters. Doesn't surprise me to see they're being litigated to the to the nth degree. And you worked with Pat Cipollone and uh, his deputy Patrick Philbin in the White House. You know how how close they were to the president day in, day out. If DOJ prevails here, what do you think the importance of their testimony would be? Well, I don't know what they're going to say because I wasn't there, but I will tell you this, is that uh, both Mr. Cipollone and Mr. Philbin, despite the fact we may have had personal differences about policy when I was in there, uh, I would defend their integrity 100%. These are very, very credible gentlemen. 
Um, and if they are providing testimony that helps the president, that carries a great deal of weight. If they're providing testimony that hurts the president, that will provide a great deal of, of weight as well. You can say a lot uh, about the president's personal lawyers. If he's had a mishmash of of really bizarre individuals representing him individually. But the lawyers he had as as president in the institution, you can add Emmett Flood to that list, uh, Ty Cobb, really, really good lawyers, credible. And if they're presenting evidence one way or the other, people should listen. I think that is notable because I remember when I covered the White House, there were disagreements between you and Pat Cipollone, but you made clear uh, there were policy differences, but you you could attest to his credibility and integrity. I want to talk about another one of the major Trump investigations. A special master reviewing the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago ordered Trump's lawyers to back up his claims that the FBI planted evidence at his Florida resort. So this seems to put them in a tough spot, right? Either sign a sworn declaration that evidence was planted or not basically admitting Trump lied. Is that how you see it? Yeah, what you're seeing here, and it's very interesting to me as, as a lawyer, as a former Trump insider, someone who worked in the in the West Wing, this is where we're starting to see the bright lines drawn between politics and public relations and the stuff that really, really matters, and that's the law and criminal charges. So what you've seen the special master do this week is a couple different things, which is, look, I've heard that you folks in the Trump team say that you have declassified those things, um, these documents. It's time to put up or shut up. Have you actually done that? Um, and if so, I want I want court filings backing that up. Similarly, he's gone to them, as you've mentioned, and said, I understand that uh, you may be making claims that uh, evidence was planted. It's time to put up or shut up on that front. Going on TV um, and, you know, on, a, on an interview on another network and saying something isn't the same as saying it to a court. Um, so you can sort of take that. And that's the advantage, I think, of the special master getting involved in this case. Keeping in mind the special master was agreed to by both Trump and the DOJ is sort of separating the noise and the PR and the bright, shiny objects from the stuff that really matters. Because um, you can lie on TV, but you can't lie in court. They were agreed to. Both sides agreed. But it was... Uh Trump's team that actually has suggested him in the first place. So it is notable. I want to ask you, uh, before we let you go, about the January 6th committee. It is returning for a hearing next week. And ahead of that, you tweeted, quote, nothing screams greatest threat to our democracy in 150 years, like taking six weeks off for vacation. Now, the committee says they've been interviewing more witnesses during this time. They've been getting information turned over from the Secret Service. Why do you think that's not a legitimate investigation? I I never thought it was legitimate in the sense that it's political. This is a political investigation. The Department of Justice investigation is real. It's a criminal investigation done by professional investigators. Do they have credibility challenges? Yes, because of the way they cheated Trump back in 2016. Yes, but they're still the Department of Justice and the FBI. January 6th is made up of, of a bunch of elected officials. They're not in the job of doing investigations. They're in the job of, of, of legislating and, 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 and getting reelected, I guess. Uh, they all hate Donald Trump. They do, even though it's bipartisan. There's no way you can make the case that it's an unbiased group of people. Have they still brought forward interesting evidence? Yes, they have. Bill Barr's testimony, I thought, was some of the most compelling regarding the fact that uh, that Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. So it's, it's certainly had value, but they've always struggled from a credibility standpoint because they all hate Donald Trump and it's designed, this hearing is designed to make him look bad. And you can't, I think, I think it's just common sense, Pam, and to, 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 to sort of say, this has been the greatest threat ever to the history of our nation and we're going to go away 
away for six weeks. I think it's incumbent upon them. You know, as a reporter, that if uh, if I had said that in the White House, you could send me a Freedom of Information Act to ask where I've been for the last six weeks. You can't do that with Congress because they're outside of FOIA. I do think it's incumbent upon them to tell us why they haven't had a hearing for six. Actually, it's eight weeks now, um, because if they want to be taken seriously, they have to deal with these credibility issues up front. All right. And we will be asking them. And of course, they would say, as I noted earlier, that they have been putting together information, talking to witnesses, trying to build a case for this next hearing. But I appreciate you offering your um, your opinion on this. Mick Mulvaney, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Pamela. Up next, the economic warning signs flag today, what they mean for your money and big name brands on your shopping list. And Jake Tapper in an exclusive U.S. interview with the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss. Her take on the global economy and what needs to happen immediately. Plus, Hurricane Fiona on track for what forecasters say will be an extreme weather event along Canada's east coast. Topping our money lead, a very rocky day on Wall Street as investors continue to wring their hands over the possibility of a recession. The Dow closed down, as you see, almost 500 points, and stocks fell to their lowest level since November 2020. CNN's Matt Egan is at the New York Stock Exchange. So, Matt, what is driving this fresh anxiety on Wall Street? Well, Pamela, it really is all about fears about high inflation and what the Federal Reserve is going to have to do to get inflation back down. Now, this summer, there was hope that maybe inflation would calm down enough to allow the Federal Reserve to stop slamming the brakes on the economy. Of course, that proved to be wishful thinking. Inflation remains way too high. And Fed Chair Jay Powell, he promised this week to do whatever it takes to get inflation under control. The concern is that the Fed is going to overdo it and either accidentally push the economy into recession or do it on purpose because that's just what's necessary. That's why we saw the Dow fall 486 points today, down almost 2%. You know, it was almost uh, an even worse day. At one point, the Dow was down 800 points and on the verge of closing in a bear market for the first time since March 2020. These losses, of course, are wiping out college savings plans, 401ks, uh, retirement nest eggs. This is definitely very painful. Now, hopefully the gloom and doom on Wall Street is overdone. Maybe the Fed can pull this off and get inflation under control without causing a downturn. Let me read you a great line from Bank of America on this. They wrote, the Fed is hiking at the fastest pace in recent memory with maximum uncertainty on the macro outlook. To us, this seems like driving at 75 miles per hour, but not knowing which way the road will turn. An accident seems inevitable. Pamela, let's hope not. Yeah, not knowing which way the road will turn, you know, and as we know, uncertainty is what drives anxiety. And you're seeing that play out on Wall Street. I want to ask you about something else. Gas prices are ticking up ever so slightly after 98 days of falling prices per gallon. So what's going on? Help us understand this. Yeah, the national average is ticking up just a little bit, 369 a gallon. But, you know, that is still well below the peak in June at 502 a gallon. And remember, gas moves with a lag to oil. Oil prices plunging 5% today. The good news is that should drive down oil prices. The bad news is oil prices are down because of those same recession fears. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much.
And the U.S. is not alone, we should note, when it comes to fears of a recession or skyrocketing costs of living. The U.K.'s new government, headed by Liz Truss, has unveiled its plan to rescue its economy. The new budget will borrow money to cut personal income taxes and subsidize energy bills. But it also cancels plans to raise taxes on corporations and it gets rid of a cap on bankers' bonuses. Plus, people on welfare benefits will be asked to step up their job searches or risk having their benefits reduced. Opposition politicians are slamming this new proposal, calling it a plan to reward the wealthy. CNN's Jake Tapper spoke exclusively with the new prime minister, Liz Truss, in her first interview with a foreign journalist since taking office. Your government just unveiled a new uh, tax proposal this week uh, that would reverse plans that, uh, to raise the corporate tax rate. You've also proposed lifting the cap on bonuses uh, for bank executives. In the U.S., um, President Biden is taking a, a very different approach, and obviously he has a different view on economic measures such as the one you're proposing. He tweeted this week, quote, I am sick and tired of trickle-down economics. It has never worked. We're building an economy from the bottom up and middle out. And so President Biden is, in, in essence, saying that he thinks your approach doesn't work. The opposition in Parliament says you're run, recklessly running up the deficit and turning your back on so-called compassionate, compassionate conservatism. Well, I don't, I don't really accept the premise of, premise of the question at all. The UK has one of the lowest levels of debt in the G7, but we have one of the highest levels of taxes. Uh, currently, we have a 70-year high in our tax rates. And what I'm determined to do as Prime Minister and what the Chancellor is determined to do is make sure we are incentivising businesses to invest and we're also helping ordinary people with their taxes. And that's why I don't feel it's right uh, to have higher national insurance and higher corporation tax because that will make it harder for us to attract the investment we need in the UK. It will be harder uh, to generate those new jobs. And you know, I want the US economy to be successful as well. I want the European economy to be successful as well. I want free, freedom-loving democracies to succeed. And one of the things that we're doing here in the UK is moving forward on our infrastructure programmes, uh, road building, uh, broadband, uh, mobile telephones. And I know that is what the administration in the US is doing as well. But of course, uh, we all need to decide what the tax rates are uh, in our own country. But my view is we absolutely need to be incentivizing growth at what is a very, very difficult time for the global economy. And we've also put in place a package of measures to support consumers with energy prices, to make sure that nobody is having to pay more than £2,500 on their bills, which is very important as well. And you can see more of Jake's interview with Prime Minister Liz Truss on CNN's State of the Union. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon Eastern right here on CNN. Well, up next, Putin's new power move, his latest attempt to steal parts of Ukraine without firing a single weapon. Our world lead starts in Ukraine, where sham elections are underway, according to Kyiv and its Western allies. In a move illegal under international law, Putin's forces are coercing Ukrainians to vote on joining Russia in four territories, or about 18 percent of Ukraine's land. Now, some Ukrainians tell CNN armed Russian soldiers are going house to house with ballot boxes. 
Well, back in Russia, women make up a majority of Russians protesting Putin's new draft, desperate to spare their husbands, sons and brothers from Putin's bloody trenches. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh talked to Ukrainians forced underground while Russia tries to steal the land it's destroyed. As Russia forces a fake choice in a sham vote on occupied Ukrainians, elsewhere, Igor and Zina make the daily deadly choice of their own. They must brave the shelling to go and get food. They've heard of Russia's staged referendums here in Bakhmut, but Moscow makes itself felt here with artillery rather than imposing a ballot, likely having entered the city's east. Streets in a strange quiet, as if in the eye of a storm where nobody is in control. They will still have to fight their way in. A sign of how things are changing fast here. Ukrainian forces have blown the bridge in the middle of the city in the last day or so. Russian forces getting close. The people left ask us not to film the outside of shelters as the Russians will target them. And they've already gone underground as much as they can. He's saying some of these things are taken from buildings that have been bombed and brought to here. A lot of people want the back of their head filmed, possibly because they're concerned that in the days ahead they may be under Russian control. He tells me perhaps 20,000 people are still hiding out here, but there's no real way to know. The choice Russia imposes on Ukrainians here is spending nights underground and scurrying between shelter. Days of hot words from Putin haven't cooled Ukraine's advance, though. The threat of nuclear annihilation carries slightly less horror here, on the road to liberated Izum, where it looks like the apocalypse has already come, bar the radiation. Ten days ago, Russia was kicked out of here after heavy fighting. Even the Russian Orthodox Church has collapsed. The devastation seems to almost spur them on. Announcements in Moscow about partial mobilisation haven't really changed the dynamic here of an army that feels it's moving forwards. They've heard about Russia's mobilisation and nuclear bombast here too. It'll have a role, he says, but you need to train and supply people so it won't make much difference as you've destroyed most of their armour. There's nothing worse than nuclear war, another says. But you must understand, these decisions aren't taken by one person, and we see in Russia not everyone supports these moves. This liberated road is where Donetsk region begins, Ukraine already taking back the places Putin made central to his goals where faked ballot boxes and absurd claims of official Russian sovereignty cannot change who owns and who scarred the land. 
Now, the farcical nature of these four so-called referenda today exposed by scenes people have talked about involving soldiers walking around with ballot boxes door to door asking people for their vote. And one uh, polling station worker that one of my colleagues spoke to said they'd had 10 people turn up in that occupied area where they were working. So low numbers, no real legitimacy here at all. Nobody expected that. And likely in the middle of next week, we'll see Russia come forward and claim there's been some sort of resounding mandate uh, for these areas becoming part of their territory. That may enable them to perhaps change their strategy on the battlefield, perhaps. I should point out one startling image that's struck a core with many Ukrainians watching Russian brutality unfold here, and that's the before and after picture of a man called Mikhailo Dianov, known as the pianist, a defender of the Azov steel plant in Mariupol. You can see him there, injured during the defence of that, and then after months in captivity, uh, tortured, it seems heavily uh, suffering from malnutrition, a remarkable change in an individual there. But now he is back with his family in Ukraine. Back to you. So hard to see that picture. Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine. Thank you. I'm glad he's back with his family. And back here in the United States, a return more than 100 days in the making. This is the first photo of two American veterans returning to U.S. soil after being held as prisoners in Russia. Volunteer fighters Alex Druki and Andy Tynock win were captured during a battle in northeastern Ukraine. Even after being detained, both men told their families they have no regrets about going over to fight with the Ukrainians. And up next, risking their lives in boats made of old surfboards. What is driving these migrants to risk their lives to make it to U.S. shores? In our national lead, New York Mayor Eric Adams says the city is opening emergency shelters amid the massive influx of immigrants seeking asylum there as the city tries to cope with the 300 to 400 refugees and migrants arriving every day. CNN's Polo Sandoval is in New York. So, Polo, how many of these temporary centers is the city opening? At least two so far, Pamela. Now, the plan is to open one at first in the Bronx. It would specifically be for adult asylum seekers, and then the plan would be to open a second one, ultimately, to be able to serve uh, families, uh, entire families of asylum seekers. Uh, but really, this is extremely telling that the city is very quickly having to reassess and readapt in its response. You get anywhere from 300 to 400 asylum seekers a day that are arriving in New York City right now, and that is a combination of those who come here on their own, as well as those who are still taking up offers from Republican governors for a free ride north. But anyway, you look at it, each one is certainly testing the city's ability to respond. And that's where these shelters that were announced will kick in, according to the city. These are soft-sided, tent-like structures. In fact, the city released a few images with a preview of what they will look like. And they are expected to basically receive these migrants, hopefully bypassing the Board Authority bus terminal here in Midtown Manhattan, and then quickly offering things like food. Uh, clothing and even uh, temporary housing, but emphasis on temporary because the plan would be to very quickly move them out of a more permanent housing situation, including a New York City shelter system. But that, Pamela, is the beginning of the next challenge here as they try to fit these people in a system that is already practically full to the brim of the rough out of the roughly 13,000 asylum seekers that have turned to this New York City for some shelter assistance. 10,000 still remain. But as you can imagine, Pamela, this is still coming with some criticism as advocates are uh, calling on them to sort of reassess, especially for the families that may end up in more congregate settings.
Pamela. All right, Paula Sandoval, thank you. And it's not just the nation's land border that is overwhelmed. Officials in Miami and Puerto Rico say the number of migrants arriving by boat has surged, far outpacing previous years. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez embedded with border officials on the water to witness the growing trend. Take a look at that one boat that's washed up ashore. A grim reality out at sea. Migrants relying on makeshift sailboats to get to the United States. Nowadays, it's a regular sighting for Coast Guard. Is it uncommon to see at least two to three different ventures all just in a span of five hours? U.S. Coast Guard crews have interdicted more than 6,000 Cubans since last October, making it the highest number of Cuban migrant interceptions since the 1990s. And thousands of migrants have also made it to shore. So far this fiscal year, border authorities have encountered nearly 3,600 migrants in the Miami sector. That's up from just over 1,000 last year. Seeing the uptick for us is really concerning in the fact that we're seeing more individuals on not-so-seaworthy vessels, putting uh, a significant amount of uh, those individuals at very dangerous risk for loss of life. Vessels include surfboards tied together and boats with limited provisions and no navigation system for what is a days-long journey. For years, Cubans have been fleeing the island, but recent unrest, persecution, and shortages of basic goods have pushed more to leave. Immigration attorney David Glados, who's based in Miami, is hiring additional staff to meet the demand of Cubans arriving to Florida. For the most part, individuals have um, come to us with stories of um, persecution from the uh, local government for their inability to participate in certain events, for just their um, for not agreeing with uh, local and, and the communist policy. Of the island. Patrols here are complicated by the varying terrain, requiring coordination among agencies on land, air, and sea, or CBP air and marine operations also patrols for incoming vessels. And it's not just Cubans they're looking for. Officials are also grappling with an increasing number of Haitian migrants. More than 100 people traveled on this vessel from Haiti, a journey that can take about a week. If you look, you can see the clothes and the snacks left behind on what is a makeshift sailboat. Chief Patrol Agent in the Miami sector, Walter Slozar, acknowledged the demand on resources to address the new trend. We're all working with finite resources. And as we encounter these individuals, um, you don't know who's uh, on that boat. It takes our agents time to bring them into our custody make sure that, that, you know, that they're healthy and that they're clean and that they're fed and that they're safe and then identify exactly who they are. Administration officials concede the jump in Cuban migration, not only at sea, but at the U.S.-Mexico border, poses a challenge. This week, the administration said the U.S. Embassy in Havana is preparing to resume full immigrant visa processing for the first time since 2017. But out at sea, crews prepare for the worst. What goes through your mind when you do see them? It could be traumatizing and sometimes very sad, at, uh, at depending on the scenario that you find these people in. Now, CBP has deployed additional agents to uh, Miami sector. And Pam, the biggest concern now is hurricane season and the danger that poses to migrants. Yeah, understandably. What an eye-opening report. Priscilla, thanks for that reporting. Just new in to CNN, the biggest names in politics, sports, entertainment, and more. All talking to CNN's Chris Wallace, movie mogul Tyler Perry is sharing why he's kept his Medea series going for so long. Listen. I've always been extremely uncomfortable in that suit and playing the character, but the audience loves it so much. And here what else Perry and others are telling Chris Wallace up next. 
And our pop lead, the question everyone is asking, who's talking to Chris Wallace? In the new CNN series, Chris speaks with some of the biggest names in politics, business, and entertainment. This time, it's retired Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who reveals what he really thinks of the court's decision to overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade case. You had a bad final year. Uh, Some of the most important cases on the court, abortion, guns, uh, the power of the EPA to regulate the climate, you were on the losing side. Was that frustrating for you to lose important case after important case? Yes. But how frustrating? Very frustrating. When the court undoes a right that people have lived with for half a century, doesn't that very much shake the authority of the court? Did I like this Dobbs decision? Of course I didn't. Of course I didn't. Was I happy about it? Not for an instant. Did I do everything I could to persuade people? Of course. Of course. But there we are. And now we go on. And we try to work together. I mean, it's a little corny what I think, but I do think it. That interview and three others are all available right now as we speak on HBO Max. So let's bring in the man himself, CNN's Chris Wallace. Chris, congratulations. Thank you. Let's talk about this. It's really actually remarkable from my point of view as someone who's covered the Supreme Court for many years to see just how forthright Justice Breyer was about that Dobbs decision. Did that surprise you? Yes. Uh, Supreme Court justices, even retired Supreme Court justices, don't talk this way. And on a number of issues, I thought that uh, Breyer, he is retired, uh, was remarkably forthright. I mean, his, his real distress about the Dobbs deci- decision, his frustration. He, com- he, you know, he was on the court for 28 years, and he contrasted the previous 27 to this last, the 28th, the final year, in which he said you know, that he lost a number of cases, and he really didn't like it, and he really tried. And I think he thinks the court has begun to go in a different direction from where it had been over the previous almost three decades. Yeah. You can tell just watching that, too, like when you brought up Dobbs, it, it, it still gets to him. You know, you can still tell it, it gets to him. Um, so you interview Justice Breyer and then you interview actor Tylee Perry, best known for his popular Medea character. And he revealed something very surprising to you. Let's watch. I've always been extremely uncomfortable in that suit and playing the character, but the audience loves it so much. I, I, I was going to do it for one little scene on stage and the lead character didn't show up so the character got bigger and bigger every night and that's where it all started i'm not denying that it's great and funny i enjoyed but again that's i have to disassociate that's actually me for somebody who's a little embarrassed or uncomfortable with medea you've been playing her for 15 how many years yeah but uh, yeah 2009 i think okay but here's the thing the audience won't let her go like even the last time i did it i said i'm out i'm not doing it anymore and then the world goes upside down. We have a, a president and a new president. This, so I wanted to make people laugh. So I said, what do I have? Pull her out. Put the movie on Netflix. It's number one everywhere. Yes. I'm like, it's great. Okay, yeah, yeah. But the minute people stop coming to see her, that old broad is dead. <laughs> She's dead, man. She's dead, for sure. No, 
the old broad can't die. Well, you know, I have people to are going to keep coming. I was, I was very uncomfortable <laughs> with it because I thought of how Medea would react exactly. to him saying the old broad is dead. <laughs> this was the biggest surprise to me in this interview because I was going to play clips of Medea. He's done about a dozen of these movies. They really made Tyler Perry, Tyler Perry. And he wouldn't even watch the clips. He was so uncomfortable mm. with them. And I think while he, on the one hand, loves what they did for him and and, and very much uh, sat is, appreciates how, how much the audience loves her. He's going on. He's got a new movie on Netflix that dropped today called A Jazz Man's Blues. No Medea in it. It's a wonderful movie. It got a very good review today in the New York Times. Yeah. And I think he thinks he's grown past her. But let me tell you, Medea is not going anywhere. The audience loves Medea yep. way too much. But I just think what you just said sums up his many talents. It's really remarkable. We're going to learn more about it um, in your show. And we want to know who else is going to be on there and who's talking. Well, this week, every week we're going to have three interviews. They'll drop on HBO Max on Friday, so you can watch them all about a half hour each today. The third interview is Shania Twain, the country music superstar. We talk about her ups and downs, tremendous success in the music business, lost her voice from Lyme disease, and in the middle of that, her husband leaves her. As I said to her, your life would make a pretty good country music song. But uh, next week, we've got Alex Rodriguez. The week after that, Mark Cuban, uh, uh, Henry Winkler we've done, uh, James Patterson, the best-selling writer in America. I mean, the joy of being able to do politics, business, sports, entertainment, culture. Uh, This is my dream job. Understandably. (laughs) I got to say, I'm a little envious, Chris, but all right. Something to work up to one day. Thanks so much. Can't wait to see it. Catch the premiere of Who's Talking to Chris Wallace Sunday night at 7 Eastern here on CNN. That's right after I wrap up with CNN Newsroom Sunday. And you can see Chris's first three episodes with Justice Breyer, Tyler Perry and Shania Twain. As we mentioned, want to say it again right now on HBO Max. And up next, Canada in the crosshairs of a hurricane this weekend and a new system taking aim at the U.S. Canadians are bracing for a direct hit from Hurricane Fiona, which has strengthened once again to a Category 4 storm. And you can see its effect on the waves as it passed Bermuda today in these images. It could be the strongest storm ever to hit Canada. Meanwhile, Florida is already bracing for a potential hurricane. Jennifer Gray is in the CNN Weather Center. So first, what do we know about Hurricane Fiona's potential impact on the Canadian coast? Well, Pamela, Canadians are going to start feeling Fiona as we speak pretty much. And conditions will begin to deteriorate between now and midnight and then really getting bad by the time we get into the morning hours. But you can see uh, some of the uh, outer bands already starting to reach Nova Scotia. Winds of 125 miles per hour, gusts of 155. This is moving incredibly fast at about 40 miles per hour. Already seeing rain all across Nova Scotia, especially on the central and eastern half. But this is going to slow down dramatically once it makes landfall. And so it's really just going to batter the region. And then uh, we're also going to see significant wave heights, six to eight feet of storm surge, plus 25 to 40 foot waves uh, just off the coast of Nova Scotia with the potential for six to 10 inches of rain. Pamela. And everyone's watching this tropical depression headed toward the Gulf Coast as well. What is the worst case scenario there? 
Well, this is forecast to become a major storm impacting Florida right now. Still a tropical depression moving at about 15 miles per hour. We've got very warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. And so this is going to be a ripe environment for this storm to just thrive and intensify very quickly. We already have a hurricane uh, watch for Cayman Islands and tropical storm watch for Jamaica. This could be a category one storm as it crosses over Cuba, strengthening quickly into the Gulf of Mexico. This could have winds of 115 miles per hour when it makes landfall fall in Florida, middle part of next week. We're going to be watching it closely over the next couple of days. Yeah, there's a lot to watch on the weather front. Jennifer Gray, thank you so much. Thanks. And you can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN, or you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have a great weekend. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.